One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance. Happy to have you guys here on a Friday. Took last Friday off as part of our standard traditional, uh, what we call daddy camp. So uh, normally, uh, I did a whole show on it uh, last year, but um, what we do for the July 4th week is uh, it goes all the way back to when my daughter was like two years old. And I was a true Sunday to Thursday or Sunday to Friday kind of traveling consultant. And I'd come home and we'd have a you know a week's vacation or something coming up, and my wife would be like, you know, let's get out of the house, let's go somewhere. And, and to be fair to her, you know, she was she was at home with the with the two year old while I was traveling. And uh, you know, from my perspective, I was like, man, if I see another hotel and flight and eat out again, I'm just I'm gonna pass out. I can't. I just can't travel. And so you know, I came up with the idea. I said, well, honey, why don't you just travel? Why don't you grab a couple of your girlfriends, and you know, we can. Go anywhere that Delta flies, anywhere there's a Marriott, and uh, just trade in our points, and, and you guys go have fun, and I'll keep the baby at home, and that'll give you some time away, allow me to, to have kind of a staycation. So that's been a tradition now for, for 16, 17 years, and, and you know, the kids, as they started getting older, we started to call it daddy camp, and uh, so it's it's camp with daddy. We just go do all the dumb stuff mama doesn't like, and uh uh, they go out and, and have uh, a vacation without the kids. So it, it kind of serves both purposes. So it's just something we've kept going. So I was off last week. Um, we actually, you know, we did a lot of activities around that, you know, around here, but we did go to Atlanta and witnessed uh, Hugh Jackman did his thing. Um, really unique show. It was kind of a cool show uh, to watch. And then uh, there was something called the Overwatch League. And this is esports, which is, I mean, to the point that they're people are making millions of dollars and being esports athletes. I mean, endorsements, anything else you would see from you know normal baseball or, or basketball or football, except they play video games and they pay, play a, a competitive league. And there's you know teams from um, uh, San Francisco and Washington D.C. and Seattle and, and Atlanta and all these different places. Uh, and so they were having what they called a homestand weekend in Atlanta. So my daughter wanted to see that. We went went there. So it was a, it was a good time. Uh, but why I took uh, last week off. Um, otherwise, this week has been you know super productive. I, I do love Daddy Camp because it uh, gives me an opportunity to recharge the batteries, um, start to refocus where we want to go in business, and and that's what this week has all you know been about. You know, as many of you know or have heard, I also uh, am the the chief interview interviewer for the Transformational Leader podcast. And uh, some of the people that uh, I interviewed this week to, to set up the, the next several weeks of, of podcasts uh, were just incredible. And I, 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 I'm going to get this gentleman on this show, uh, but his name is uh, Dr. Daniel Amen. And if you, if you haven't heard of him, you need to go research him. He, uh, he is single-handedly disrupting the profession of psychiatry. And the way he tells a story, it's fascinating because what what he said was, is you know, he was an X-ray tech in in the military, and uh, then uh, fell in love with psychiatry, became board certified psychiatrist, and he started to put two and two together that the brain is the only organ in our body in which we diagnose without taking a picture of it, without seeing what's going on on the inside, and so 
he is the the doctor that uh, was portrayed uh, in the movie uh, Concussion uh, that uh, that Will Smith had done. Uh, it wasn't an actual true portrayal, but the the, the story of it nonetheless, uh, and has helped you know foster CTE, work with the NFL. He's got several clients, um, and has done some groundbreaking work in terms of depression and ADD and and areas like that that normally are diagnosed by what we call symptom clusters. Uh, but not diagnosed by, you know, taking any picture uh, of your brain or understanding what's going on inside your brain. Um, and uh, he is he has been working for the last 20 years to change that. And uh, probably one of the most fascinating interviews I've I've ever done. Uh, he, he was just captivating. So uh, that's going to be coming up soon on Transformational Leader Podcast. We'll get Dr. Amen on this show as well. Um, but uh, just really cool stuff. So it's been a busy week. A lot of things happening uh, in my business. You know, I'm in the middle of a transition business-wise. I, uh, you know, I've been doing uh, project management development and project management implementations for, for really 20 years now. And uh, I'm getting to a point where, you know, I'm, I'm starting to transition more into uh, values-based leadership and values-based focus. I did a show a couple of weeks ago about uh, this training I went through through Global Priority Solutions uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of doing double duty right now uh, in, in sense of keeping my existing business running, but transitioning into this new business. So there'll be a lot of announcements and exciting things coming up uh, soon on the show. What I wanted to do today was uh, uh, talk about um, ethical influence. And uh, you know, we announced a series called The Art of Ethical Influence. And I'm going to have a, a particular project management slant on this one today to talk about how we can ethically influence um, projects, executives, organizations to, to move, and, and what it really means to have ethical influence. So in order to do that, I, I felt like we needed to, to set some ground space. First of all, the reason I even started to go down this path uh, was based on a quote that John Maxwell says. Uh, he says that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And I'm really, really focused on that word influence, because if you marry that to uh, what I've said from, from stage for the last several years is that the, the only skill that really needs to be developed or the number one skill that needs to be developed as a project manager is your influence. And so when I'm, I've been working with John, I've been working with the team and, and, and uh, Dr. Cialdini and some just amazing people, uh, I'm, I've really just gone on this journey as to what is influence how do you measure it? How do you uh, grow it? And then in terms of ethical influence, how do we use that in such a way that benefits the organization, but we do so ethically? So as I start to go down a path like that, I want pure definition. I want to work uh, from, from a level set. And so the level set to me is, again, just the pure definition of influence. What do I mean by influence? And if you use that as a verb, as if I'm influencing somebody, it, it literally means to move or impel a person to some action. It, it's basically getting them to, to, to go over there, getting them to do this task, getting them to, to think about something that, that we want them to think about. It's, but you're the catalyst to move or impel that person. So to me, that's influence. When you look at ethics, you know, there's a lot of different uh, terms around ethics. And to me, it, I, I use ethics as the branch of philosophy that deals with values uh, relating to human conduct, right? With respect to the rightness and wrongness of certain actions and the goodness or badness of the motives and ends of such actions. So I'm really looking at what's what's the motivating factor of why I want to influence somebody. So 
when when we start to talk about influence, certainly when you start to uh, understand the psychology of persuasion and influence, then you can quickly see there's two sides of the coin. There, there's an ethical use in which you're simply trying to present the best option. So for instance, in sales, I, I, I want you to take the best deal, right? Uh, and, and I want to, I want you to, to lean my direction or my, my company direction. So that's a, a, an ethical use of it. Uh, but unethical use is to, is to almost trap somebody where they have to buy or uh, convince them in, in, by utilizing influence that, you know, there's no other way but to buy this and you got to do it now. And, and so that's where I'm really starting to draw that line in terms of what we talk about ethics. Um, but I think one of the prevailing things that that's in my mind around ethics is, again, something that um, it was a story that John Maxwell had, had shared and it's something that he has uh, uh, shared several times from, from stage. And I've, I've said it on the show before. But it was right around the time that uh, Enron was going on that we were just losing a lot of trust in, in corporations. So you had uh, the housing bubble, you had Enron, you had all these uh, technology bubble bursts, the whole nine yards. Um, and a lot of it was coming out through, through ethics. And so John's publisher had asked him to write a book on ethics and, uh, and specifically business ethics. And uh, John declined. And when they asked him why, he says, well, there, there's, there's no such thing as, as business ethics. There's just ethics. You either have them or you don't. And uh, he says, so I can't, he says, I'm happy to write a book on ethics alone, but I can't call it business ethics. It's not, it's not a switch that you throw when you leave the office, right? It's, uh, and so that's been a huge influence on how I look at these things. And the reason why I believe that the art of ethical influence is so important is that I, I connect that also to what Paul Martinelli says in terms of that your beliefs will, will, will drive your behavior, right? And there's the great Carl Jung quote that says, um, until you bring the, the subconscious conscious, it'll rule your life and you will call it fate. What, what really Paul's talking about is that you have to, and, and he calls it your, your BS, you, you have to change your BS. And uh, that's not the normal acronym that you think of, but he means belief system, that you have limiting beliefs in a belief system. And then that belief system is what's going to drive your behavior. So if you, if you feel like you can't do something or that you're not supposed to do something, um, then your belief system is going to, to generate that. One, one of the better um, stories I, that I, I hear him share that talks about uh, the, the Easter Bunny in, in you know, again, if you have children in the car right now, you, you may want to, to plug their ears. But essentially, he said that, that you know, an Easter, and I'm not going to ruin anything for the kids. I'm just teasing. But he essentially said an Easter, um, when, you know, this this mythical rabbit leaves all your favorite candy, he, uh, as a young person, you know, would break down doors trying to find it. Right? He was so excited to wake up. Um, but when his belief system changed, he, he barely could get out of bed for Easter. And in when you, when you hear it like that, that's how your beliefs will drive your behavior. And um, I actually had a great phone call uh, today uh, with a friend of mine, and, and we were talking how, um, how we think, how each other thinks. And he thinks in terms of roadblocks. And he, he has a difficult time sometimes getting off of go. And that's because every time he starts to go towards something, um, he starts thinking about all the what if things that could go wrong. And then some of those will then translate into fears. And then that changes his belief system. Um, I am as, as far away from that as possible because I just, I believe in hope. 
Um, I think if you if you go through a value system, one of the one of the ones that um, I pair up more than anything is is hope with preparation. Um, but I can I, I get into this mode where I can just feel something's going to be happening. I feel something is right, and I'm just I'm going to go full force. Um, and so uh, to give you an example of that, you know, we opened up a foundation, and I'm getting questions like, you know, how are you going to fund it? Well, I know exactly how I'm going to fund it. They're like, how are you going to disperse? And so, well, I know exactly how I'm going to disperse the funds. But when they start going, well, what happens if there's a conflict? And it's like, from, from my perspective, the way I work with hope as well as preparation is, well, I'm not going to sit here and come up with the 94 what ifs. I'm going to handle the situation when it arise, arises. And I have enough of a corporate background that that I'm aware, you know, when things are about to go awry. So I'm constantly prepared. But I hope and believe and, and allow that hope to change my belief system to be able to know that things are going to be okay. You know, I have a dear friend of mine um, that asked me, well, what if it doesn't? She, she asked me that a lot. What, what if it doesn't happen? What, what if this happens? What if that happens? And, you know, my response is almost always, I, it's going to be okay. I just know it's going to work out because my, my question back is, but what if it doesn't? So what if this happens? Yeah, but what if it doesn't? And if it is, if it does happen, you know, we, we thought about it. We've got a, a plan. I don't know how that plan is going to play out, but we got a plan. But what if it doesn't happen, right? It, it, it's just it, we're sitting here senselessly worrying about things that, that may never come to be. So we're going to continue down this path here. Um, and what I'm going to do is actually get into some of the uh, behavioral scientist uh, findings around influence and then we're going to start to connect the dots of ethical influence to some of the most common problems that we deal with in project management. So we hope that you'll uh, hang out with us. We're going to take a quick break right here. You're listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end -end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. 
And we're back to this edition of the Work-Life Balance this Friday afternoon. Uh, happy to be back. Happy to be talking to you guys and, and rolling out some some of the content around uh, the art of ethical influence. Um, and so I wanted to give an example when we start to talk about uh, ethical influence and, and how I utilize that. I'm going to give a project management example. It's something I actually did uh, from stage for years, and it, and it felt like it's something that that I had um, fallen into. Like I, I discovered this. Uh, this kind of, it's not a trick, it's its a, um, it's understanding data and how data presents itself. But uh, uh, the thing that I did was was connect that then to some project management principles so that I could influence organizations to understand why we do what we do. So to give you a little background on that, in the project management profession, uh, you have a very typical way a project goes. A project gets assigned, uh, they give it to a project manager, and Either the project manager will hear, uh, you know, we don't have time to plan, we got to get started, or they're given a, a mandated date. Uh, and then from there, you know, the project manager sometimes doesn't even plan the project. Or if they do plan the project, they come up with what, what it's uh, capable of doing. So let's say we'll be done in August. And a direct quote for me one time uh, from a client was, he said, when do you think you can be done? I said, right now we're looking at August. He said, what would it take to get it done by April? You know, my answer was yeah, fairy dust, right? We grab Tinkerbell, we catch her, shake her real hard. Maybe I can generate four months, but that, this is what it's going to take. This is how long it's going to take. And so that whole date conversation and what the process of project management is, is something that's uh, overlooked quite a bit in organizations. And so I wanted to be able to influence executives to understand the art of project management. And um, so I, 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 I was doing this tour for a software company that they were taking me around to executive breakfasts. And so I basically uh, had 20 minutes to, to talk about the, the value of project management. And, um, but I knew I had about three minutes in order to influence them to at least listen to what I had to say, that they were just gonna tune out after about three minutes. So um, I utilized this exercise and, and I realized it's a radio show, so we may not get the results that, that we're used to in, um, you know, in a live format, but let me walk you through it. So essentially, this is just a general exercise. So I, I tell you, I tell people to pick any number between one and 10. So go ahead and do that. Just have a number in your head from one and 10. Um, and now I want you to, to double that number. Okay. Now I want you to add eight to that number. So if you pick four, you double the number eight, you add eight to it is 16. Okay. Then you divide the number by two which is eight now, right? And then subtract the number you started with. I started with four, so now I'm to the number four. So now I want you to select the letter that corresponds to your number in the alphabet. So if you have the number one, pick A, number two, pick B, number three, pick C, number four, pick D, so on and so forth. So now that you have that letter, so in this instance, I have D, I want you to pick a country that starts with that letter. And you can come up with that on your own. But what, what country do you think of in your, in your brain uh, that starts with D? Now, we take the next letter in the alphabet, uh, which would be E in this case, right? And think of a typical zoo animal that starts with that letter. And then finally, pick a logical color for that animal. Now, when I do this live, the, this next reveal stage is, is pretty cool. But if you're just listening to the podcast, you're, you're listening to me live right now, um, chances are in 90, 95% to 98% of you pick Denmark, elephant, and gray. 
Now that's just statistical analysis. That that is just um, uh, basically uh, statistical analytics that says that those are the most common answers. Now, if you look at the process that I did, though, we start with one to ten. We also had you divide the number by two. If I had you uh, double the number, I had you uh, you know cut that in half. The only thing we really did was add eight to the number and then subtract the number you started with, which means I'm always going to drive you to the number four, which drives you to the letter D, which is then Denmark elephant and grape. Now, that's ethical influence, though, because I didn't tell you what to, to, to come up with. And, and I actually do a roundabout. So I hear Deutschland a lot. I hear Dominican Republic a lot. So I'll call those out afterwards. I hear emu or eel uh, or eagle quite a bit for the ease. Uh, and then, you know, if you if you pick pink for the elephant, you know, I really don't know what you did last night. You probably went to some country concert or something. But the point being is, is those are logical answers and it's, it's predictive analytics. And so what I do then is tie this back in though. So that's an experience. That's an aha moment. You raise the, the, the energy of the audience that normally, you know, I've got 200 people in the room. And when you see all the hands go up, when I say who picked Denmark elephant and gray, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, Thing. And I, I didn't write this. This has been out on the internet. And and uh, actually, now that I say that, I'm going to make a correlation here in a second. But I tie this back to project management, though, because what so many executives do is they pick a project and they pick a date. And so I ask the question of the audience, especially these executives, I go, you know, how how uh, good would I have been? What, what was the likelihood I would have picked your country if I said pick any letter of the alphabet? Um, or you know, and, and come up with any country, come up with any zoo animal, right? So basically what I've done is through predictive analytics, drove you to at least a subset of an answer. And then I got 90 to 98% of the audience. Well, what they do in projects is they select a project and then they pick a date and they pick a budget and then they give it to a project manager. And that's the same thing as me just saying, pick a country in the world. Let me see if I can guess it. Right. But through predictive analytics, which is a process, the process of leading them to the number four, although they're making their own decisions, is the same thing I do as a project manager. I have a series of questions and a process that's going to help us get closer. Excuse me, to, to understand where a date may land, where a budget may land. But if you take those skills away from me then we might as well just throw a dart at the dartboard and, 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 you know, best of luck. Now, the funny thing is about ethical influence is if, if you take this same exercise, and, and I remember I read this exercise, you know, a long time ago, I, I made that connection and uh, I had lost the slide. So I went and researched on the internet and you could do that. You can, if, if you want this little process, you just research Denmark elephant and gray and it, it, it'll come up. The funny thing is, is when I did that, um, it came under a heading of how to uh, how to trick girls or pick up girls in a bar with neat mind tricks. And so it's the exact same process, the Denmark elephant gray and all that stuff. But the, the sides of ethical influence on one side of the ethical influence, I'm using that to to connect to a negative practice that happens that that causes you know financial loss. And the other person connected it to, hey, I think I can get a girlfriend. And I, I just found that fascinating um, as a correlation as to what we mean and what I mean by taking something. We can take the same exact exercise, but you can use it ethically or you can use it unethically. And I don't choose to pick up girls with that as, as a trick. It just doesn't work that way. So, 
But that's that's a perfect sign or understanding of what I'm talking about in terms of ethical influence. You create an experience that they remember, and then through that experience, because I'll walk into a new organization. I was a uh, project turnaround specialist for Xerox, and, and what that meant for me was I, I would have to go in. I had two, maybe three weeks to analyze a project that was failing, analyze the team, analyze the, the culture of the organization, put a plan together, and then move on to the next thing. And so um, I would get the whole team together, uh, project team, customer, all of us together, and I'd pull Denmark Elephant Gray. I'd, I'd pull this exercise out. And um, the way I would connect it to them is was creating a, a mental connection point that I could recall um, so that I could let them know that they may not always understand what I'm doing, but there is a purpose. Um, so for instance, so I would do the Denmark elephant gray thing. And I'd say, look, uh, I'm going to be running us through a process. And if I skip a step, then it's going to, uh, make the answer not be four is the way I would say it. But people immediately connected that to, okay, I understand that he drove us to the number four. And then, um, I would call a meeting like a week later and say, hey, I need a meeting. And somebody would go, why? why why, do I have to go? I don't want to go. And I'd go, look, Denmark, Elephant, and Gray, I need this meeting to move us forward. And they'd come in. They'd attend. And so it became an influencer because I connected it to an aha moment. And I could do that in like 60 seconds flat from stage. But basically by connecting it to the aha moment, then they knew immediately in their brain, they made the connection of, okay, I don't understand what he's doing, but I know there's going to be a payoff. So I'm going to come. And so that's, that's where a lot of this started. And, and it was interesting because I'm going to talk about uh, in the next segment, I'll talk about Dr. Cialdini, but I've been somebody who, who has really looked into my career and thought into to things and, and really found things that had worked for me and, and perpetuate that and teach that from stage had no idea um, why it worked. I just knew it worked. I just knew that I was successful and I was, I was sharing, you know, personal stories of success with, with, with other people to, to help perpetuate a profession that I'm, I'm so passionate about. And uh, when I got through and started to, to really understand um, the powers of persuasion and understand what influence really means in the long run, uh, it was it was interesting how many of my techniques that have worked over time fit into these principles of persuasion. Uh, and I just had never made that connection before um, until now. So uh, what we're going to do here is is take a break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about um, some of Dr. Cialdini's work and um, and uh, the things that that I'm starting to connect from a profession. Then we'll connect that to uh, some of the common issues that we have as project managers. So stay with us. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? 
In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon. We're talking about the art of ethical influence with the slant towards project managers. And uh, so in the last segment, I was talking about uh, the powers of persuasion, principles of persuasion, and the, the leading uh, really investigator, the, the, the leading developer of this that, that I know of is Dr. Cialdini. And uh, he's got a great book out called The Powers of Persuasion. And I got an opportunity to spend some time with him um, in Phoenix not too long ago. And, he, and it really comes down to um, the, the, there's six fundamental, pr- fundamental principles that can be taught, learned, and applied uh, which is backed up by five decades of research by behavioral scientists that show that uh, persuasion is something that can be taught and persuasion is something that can be uh, utilized in the workplace. And so I, I'm just going to briefly go over these six principles. These are uh, you know, property and, and intellectual property of Dr. Cialdini. It's, it's, you, can, you can freely get this uh, from the web, but uh, uh, the, the first main principle is, is obviously the principle of liking. Um, we talk in sales all the time that people have to know, like, and trust you to buy from you. So they're, they're, that is a huge piece, right? People also tend to like those who like them. And so uh, if there's similarity and there's, there's praise and, and you know, you're drawn to, to people who like you, it's as simple as that. You're not drawn to people who don't like you, right? You, you want to stay away from that person. So there, that's obviously a, a, a principle is that you have to like it in the way that, that I, I'm really using that though. And, and again, I'm just going to speak personally for a second uh, as, as I've really been diving in uh, to, to my internal belief system. Uh, I recognize that th- there's a point where I can cross a line where um I, I don't like a client that I'm working for, right? And so it's it's funny because when I heard the principle and I really started to dive into when am I at my best for my organization, when am I at my worst, uh, it all comes down to whether or not I really like them. Um, the people that I like and, and there's there's a, a, a mutual uh, trust there. I mean, we like my creative brain just goes wild. Uh, but the moment that somebody crosses over and, and it takes a while to get there, but once they've crossed that line, it's very hard for me to, to pull that back. Um, so the principle of liking is, is, you know, can persuade my belief system of whether or not I can be at my best or not. It just it is what it is. Um, second principle we talk about is reciprocity. People tend to repay in kind. 
and um, it's it's the golden rule, right? Do unto others the way you you want done unto yourself. But you know, we I've shared in the past uh, how I honor my father, and I, I literally I, I I was brought to tears, uh, you know, last week right before Daddy Camp, um, because um, you know I do I, I I do a thing where I pick up checks at, at a restaurant. It's just a, it's a way for generosity. It's it's just a way I honor my father. It's not about being a big man on campus. It's just what I do. And uh, it, it, to me, it's a way I sow seeds. It's just an act of kindness and um, something that, that I want to do. And so I've been doing that uh, for years. And, um, you know, most of the time is what it is. The John Maxwell team is, is so different, though, because people have figured that out. For years, I got away with doing it and them not knowing who it was. And then finally, somebody had a, had a witch hunt, found out it was me, and now the, the big rush is whether or not they can pick up my tab, which is sweet, right? But not why I do it. Um, but this last IMC in, in, in March, um, there, there's a gr- guy by the name of uh, uh, Robert DiGiacano uh, that uh, I know and, and served with in, uh, in Costa Rica and uh, just love the guy. And so I saw him at a table. There was three other people. I didn't know the other three people at the table and I, I picked up his tab and he knew he knew it was me the moment the the waiter came over and said, "Hey, it's it's good." Um, and so he explained what I did and why I d- did it to the three people at the table. So Bob happens to live in Bermuda. We call him Bermuda Bob, and that's where my wife and her friend was going uh, for for daddy camp this year. And so I just reached out to Bob and said, "Hey, bud, you know if, if there's you know something special you can do, or um, can you just you know hook up a dinner or something, or you know." let them know about an event that they may not know of just something, you know, just whatever. Um, Bob calls me back and, and says, I got you covered. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, first of all, he goes, the the people that were at the table that night at the IMC, they all live in Bermuda. And when I told them who it was and who was asking, they've all come together. And so it turned out to be red carpet service the entire week for my wife and, and her friend, uh, you know, pick up from the airport, private drivers, uh, taking them to, you know, the best spots in Bermuda and watching the sunset while they're having dinner and, and being waited on hand and foot. And, you know, Bob took care of all that. Jamel uh, Bean uh, jumped in and helped take care of all that. And it was just that that kindness that came back to, to me to, literally brought me to tears I, I, to have influence, you know, uh, across the world like that. But that was all based on the principle of reciprocity, right? Um, and what's interesting about reciprocity, though, is it's not about bribe. You have to give without the expectation of receiving, right? If you if you give without the expectation of receiving, then you're you're sowing the seeds, and and sure, some will fall on unfertile ground, but some of them are, are going to be returned. Uh, and that was a perfect example of that. Another principle of persuasion is social proof. Um, so you know, people are going to follow the the lead uh, of others, basically. Um, if if you know something comes up on on Facebook and you don't believe it, but if it's twenty of your friends that are saying the same thing, all of a sudden there's social proof that something works. And and you know Facebook ads are littered with social proof. Always starting with somebody that had some hard luck story and they did you know they they took this pill and now it's awesome and and people utilize that as social proof and that's kind of a, a invalid or unethical way of, of using social proof. 
to persuade somebody to purchase a product that to me is is unethical if that person didn't truly use that product or didn't truly see those results. So there's a principle of social proof. One of my favorite principles is consistency. Um, you know, people will align with their commitments, um, but also it's the person who's making the commitment. You know, if they consistently say they're going to call and don't call, then you know you you start to lose the persuasion. But if you're if you call when you say you're going to call, or you show up when you say you're going to show up, it's basically you know walking the walk and talking the talk. Then you're practicing that principle of consistency, which leads to persuasion. People will tend to listen to you. Um, or uh, be open more to suggestions. Now, there's the principle of authority as well. And authority, not so much in do it because I said so, but a principle of authority is more deferring to experts, right? So um, it's, it's basically uh, you're sick and you've got a list of symptoms and you go to WebMD, you're, you're, you're lending the persuasion and the principle of persuasion to authority because you think that that's doctors behind that and that that's going to tell you what to do. Um, so uh, you look for authoritative sources to back up uh, the persuasion. But when somebody has claimed themselves as an expert and then doubles that with the principle of social proof that they are, then you tend to believe what they say. Right. So it's it's a principle of persuasion that says authority is going to help drive you to um, making that the, the decision for yourself. And the final principle is scarcity. I don't think I, I, I've seen anybody uh, utilize that principle more than anybody is Paul Martinelli. That guy um, creates scarcity like there's nobody's business in the sense of, um, you know, people want more of, of what they they can have less of, right? It's, it's, it's why certain stamps, right? Stamp collectors, certain stamps are worth so much more money because they're so rare. Um, and so study after study really shows that items and opportunities that are seen to be more valuable as they become less available, uh, it's, that's a, a tremendously useful uh, piece of information for anybody. Um, you know, think about uh, go, going to a concert and, uh, you know, there's only 12 VIP tickets. Well, those are going to command a higher price than, you know, the, the seats in the back that, that have no view. Um, but the fact that there's only 12 um, is scarcity. And, and I actually use that in, in sales in the sense that um, for a long time, the, the claim to fame for me was I was the only uh, consultant in the world that was certified end to end in, in project management. And that's because there was this OPM3 um, certification that I had at, uh, at Project Management Institute that says that I can assess uh, the maturity model. It's an organizational process maturity model um, that I was certified to deliver, which would assess them uh, where, where they were in their project management practices. Then I was uh, certified in Six Sigma, which could lead to the process change that was necessary, as well as being certified in uh, five of the, the seven major tools that, that we can implement uh, from a technology perspective in project management. So it, it was an easy claim for me because there was nobody who was certified in the technology that was certified in OPM3. There was a, a smaller group, a subset of people and so that, that's where the swoosh and the R-squared logo came around um, was to, to state that I was the, I'm the only person certified end-to-end -end in project management. I don't use that one much anymore, uh, but that was something that I was doing early in the career as I was building the business because at the time, 
um, to be honest, I wasn't seen as an expert yet, right? I was, I was new in the field, uh, was just starting implementations. Now I don't need the principle of scarcity uh, because I have the principle of, of consistency as well as the principle of authority. So people seek me out as an expert in, in project management methodologies in, in, in systems. And so that's where the persuasion comes in. But what's interesting is that the six principles of persuasion, they're not new, and they, they all make sense. Um, and, and they've been known in the psychology field for 20, 30 years. However, Dr. Cialdini, the way he does it is, is presented in such a way that they're easy to grasp and understand and also uh, employ. So if any of those spoke to you, you, you want to research Dr. Cialdini, you want to go read The Power of Persuasion, um, which is, uh, you know, he's got an uh, influence book and he's got a new one out um, called Presuasion. Uh, which is interesting. It's it's all about um, setting up the 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 potential persuasion. So I'll give you an example of what we're talking about. There is uh, uh, they did a they did a study where they were giving people samples of soda, and uh, they would just ask you, "Hey, do you want to try a new soda? Hey, do you want to try a new soda?" And they tracked their their statistics, and then they came back and said uh, they changed one thing, uh, which was to persuade them. Uh, and they'd ask the question, uh, are you an adventurous person? And if they said yes, then they go, would you like to try this new soda? And, the, and the, there was a dramatic increase in the percentage of people who said yes to being adventurous that would actually try the soda. And, and that's that's kind of the technique of just understanding how people um, predetermine uh, their, their buying processes that, that can lead to, to influence uh, but the, the step I want to take beyond that is not just to understand that, but how do you do so ethically? Um, and, and I think the, the ethical side of it has to be that, that it's uh, honest, that um, it's in line with something you would do anyway, right? Meaning um, if you're going to present pricing uh, to a client, maybe you have three options. It's the order in which you, you give the pricing that, that leads to persuasion and, and in persuasion, however, um, you would have given those three options anyway. So it's not like you're creating something solely to persuade. It's just changing your message so that it is more persuasive into your into your line of of work. So all of that to say, that's been a journey that that, that I've been on is really understanding these principles. Well, why why do I say these principles and ethical influence is so important to project managers? And to me, the, the the biggest reason why is project managers are sold the greatest lie that that's ever been told. And the greatest lie that's ever been told to a project manager is that you own the project. And even as a kid, I was like, oh, it's mine. I own it. Right. They, they say you own the project. You, you make all the decisions. Well, it took me 10 years to figure out that I don't own Jack, man. That, that, that's not my project. Those aren't the people that, that I have no influence over them. It's not my budget. I can't write a check to anybody or anything I want. What even my idea? So what? What is it that I own, right? I, and so the only thing I own is the influence to get a group of people on the same track to finish an initiative that's never been done before. But I don't own that project. What I do is own the influence to make people excited as to why we should be doing that project and to influence executives on what we need in order to accomplish the project in terms of time and, and, and money and resources. So that was an aha moment that, that I came up with 
you know, 10, 11 years ago, um, maybe even longer now, I'm, I'm starting to get old, but anyway, 10, 11 years ago. Um, and so I've really been diving into the science of the brain and, and behind that. But that's why it's so important to project managers is that the only thing we have is influence. And if leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less, then this is exactly what we need to understand in order to be more effective in our careers. When we come back, I'll tell one more uh, little influence tip, and then uh, we'll wrap up for the week. And you've been listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Moore. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the work-life balance. And we're back to the final segment of the work-life balance this Friday afternoon. So we were talking, we talked about the art of ethical influence. We talked about the principles of persuasion and how that, that fits in. I just want to tie this a little bit together um, with another concept that, that, that I love talking about from stage and that's connotation. Um, it's, it's, if there's, if you can just change one word in a sentence um, or a phrase in a sentence, it changes the whole connotation and meaning and, that can lead to your self-persuasion in, in making sure things happen. So let me give you an example. Um, one of the harshest examples I've heard is um, is like with, with my kids. And, and uh, the phrase that gets changed is instead of I don't have time. So I'm sorry, it's not a good time right now. Or, I don't have time. Um, if, you, if you say, I'm sorry, you're just not the priority right now. That changes the connotation. Now, I'd never say that to my kids. I'm talking about what happens in my own brain. But if if you change that sentence uh, to anybody, to not just your kids, but, but spouse, girlfriend, whatever, if you, if you say, I'm sorry, I don't have time, what you're saying is you're not a priority to me right now. And um, if you tell yourself that it could change you know, what is it that I'm really doing right now? And maybe they are the priority. Maybe I do need to be spending time with them. So that that's an example of a connotation switch. Um, one of the ones that I use most often from stage is, is talking about hearing people say have to. 
Ah, I have to go to this meeting. Ah, I have to go to work. Oh, I have to deal with this person at work. And, and the connotation switch there is to change the word have to get. Uh, and so if I say the same things, I get to work. I get to go to this meeting. I get to go deal with this person at work because it's a blessing. I'm sorry. A lot of us have jobs that, that, that we're not happy with, and, and we can certainly find something that, that ignites our soul a little bit better. But at the same time, you get to go to work while you're doing that. You get to, to get a paycheck while you're doing that. And that one word shift in your brain can, can dramatically change the outcome of, of how you approach things. And so the one that I, the connotation switch I use most often with the, anybody I'm coaching that's an entrepreneur is, is want and will. So I hear somebody say, oh, I want to I wanna start my own business. I, I want to be successful. I want to not have to, to do the nine to five. Um, but again, that one connotation switch in your brain, um, I will start a business. I, I, I will move out of this nine to five, right? I, I, I will be successful. And, and what, I've, what I've learned is a lot of people want success. They just don't have the will to go after it. And so I don't like to say the word want anymore. And even in that phrase, I said I don't like versus, you know, I don't want to say want, right? Because that's, that's the way it, it even almost came out of my, my mouth just now is I don't like to say the word want. I like to say the word will. So, you know, man, I want to meet that person someday. And then I will meet that person someday. And, and that energy does translate into action and activity. But the biggest thing is, and tying this all the way back to segment one, is that energy will translate your belief system. If your belief system, is it wanting or willing, right? What is your belief system doing today? Is it, is it wanting to have a better life or is it willing to do the things that it that it will take to have a better life. What what's the the, the difference of, of essentially three letters changes the entire impact of the statement, and that's called the connotation switch. And the biggest thing I recognized in my entire career, my entire life, um, and it's said so beautifully uh, when we do the art of roundtables, is that transformation begins with me. I can't transform. Uh, things and opportunities and, and all that stuff into existence if I can't transform me and be willing, not wanting to, to be better. And that willing to be better translates into so many different things. It's not just, yeah, I'm willing to put in the hard work or I'm willing to put myself out there on the edge, but I'm willing to, to go deep inside myself to understand why a, a behavior exists. And I'm willing to, to, to change it. Yeah, I've heard people say, well, I can't change that about me. No, 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 you can. But you have to be willing to go after it. You have to be willing to, to understand why you think that way. And there's so many incredible things out there, right? We do disc profiles and we do roundtables and there's the axiology of the brain. And there's all these things that, that can help you understand why you do certain things that the the, the the difference in whether or not you're really going to overcome that is, are you willing to overcome those things? Or are you just wanting to stay who you are? And that is, has been by far the, the greatest transformation in, in my career over the last several years is I don't want anymore. I will it into existence. People, you know, talk to me about, you know, my principles of, of hope and preparation. I prepare every day 
every day I'm preparing for an opportunity that that is nowhere close to, to being realized. I just know it will. And so I don't see it as wasted opportunity because when it does happen, I'm willing to 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 employ and take action against the preparation that I've done. And so people, you know, I had a great conversation with somebody last week because, man, opportunities just fall into your lap. No, no, they don't. What I'm doing is I'm preparing myself and willing myself that when an opportunity presents itself, I can grab hold and I can take it and I can run. But that is a pure will and a pure change of my belief system where, where transformation begins with me that I know I can do it. People, you know, I, I had a conversation today with a guy about the foundation that we started. He's like, well, how do you know it's going to uh, work? Don't you want it to work? And I was like, no, it will work. I just know it will. I don't know the how. I just know it will. And, the, and again, I could be uh, overzealous on the hope. But it's, it's, it's hope with preparation, not blind faith. And there's a huge difference there, right? Hope with preparation says when the opportunity presents, I'm going to go after it. And I have the hope that the opportunity will present. Blind faith just says, well, I'm, I don't care. I'm going to go after it, um, but not have any preparation behind it. There's a huge difference between hope and preparation and, and blind faith. So that's the show for this week. I, I love that you, that you guys are hanging on. Um, we've got some really cool stuff that, that's going to be popping up here soon. Um, next week, I may end up doing a replay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in West Des Moines, uh, Iowa uh, during that time. We've got a lot of travel coming up, uh, but I'm going to have a really special guest. I don't even want to announce it. I don't want to jinx it, but I've got a really special guest coming up July 26th. So excited to have this person on. It's going to be a fantastic, it's going to be a funny show. We're, we're going to have a good time. And uh, also uh, got another special guest that I've lined up for uh, August 2nd. So lot, got a lot of stuff kicking. Um, we love that you guys are hanging on. Reach out to me. You can hit me at, at Rick A. Morris or find me on Facebook or rmorris at rsquareconsulting.com. Let me know what you thought of today's show. If there's any guests that you have in mind that you think would make a great guest on this show, we're happy to hear it. And um from this point forward to just uh, keep in touch with us. I love the feedback I get on social media. I try to answer all of you as much as possible. And I appreciate uh, uh, all the love and support that I get back uh, from you guys. It's that true principle of, of reciprocity. Uh, so I, I love that you guys even spend a few moments listening to this show. Uh, with that, we're going to cut it off this Friday. I'm going to go chase my own work-life balance and uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show. 